Good morning, everybody. I bring you greetings from Aylesbury. Who's uh, ever heard of Aylesbury? Six, seven, a uh, great, marvellous. Aylesbury is, of course, famous for Aylesbury Duck, and not a lot else, actually, to be honest. Whereas St Albans, of course, is famous in the Christian heritage of this country. Uh, according to Google, so must be right, you were responsible for torturing and executing the first Christian martyr. <laughs> Apparently, you have a way of dealing with visiting speakers who displease you. <laughs> now, I want you to know that I abhor physical violence, um, especially against myself. So if you could limit any displeasure this morning to the traditional Christian approaches of writing anonymous letters in love, and asking for your tithes back, then that would be greatly appreciated, I'm sure. Anyway, as you are obviously a, a bit of a demanding audience, I thought Chris was uh, very wise to ask me to talk about something easy-peasy this morning. So we're going to look at the question, how do I know God's will? <laughs> and because that's obviously not going to take very long, um, We'll pad that out with the related question of how do I know if I have a calling? So simple stuff. What could possibly go wrong? Okay, very quick show of hands, please. Uh, who's ever wondered about those questions? How do I know God's will or how do I know God's calling? Okay, a few more than have ever heard of Aylesbury, which is interesting. So let's see if we can get this all to make a little bit more sense in the next half an hour or so. Now, if there's one thing that clearly ought to be the hallmark of living as a disciple of Jesus, it's being in God's will. In uh, Matthew 7, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father. So that, that sounds a bit scary if somehow we miss it. And in John 6, he says, I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me which suggests that uh, even for Jesus in his humanity, there was always the possibility of his will and God the Father's will being out of sync. So how much more scary does that make it for us? Now, if you've been around the Christian world for more than about a nanosecond, you'll have picked up lots of helpful tips from fellow Christians about how God reveals his will to us. Let's just quickly run through some of them. I'm hearing some words in my head and believing God put them there. God is speaking to me through something I'm feeling or sensing. Someone gave me a word or picture which I'm believing is from God. I read a verse or a story or I saw a word in the Bible which I think is God speaking. I put out a fleece as Gideon did in Judges 6. I asked God to do something so that I'll know it's him by whether he does it or not. Or I read into my life circumstances, things that happen or don't happen, whether doors open or close, and I take that to be God. Now, it may already be apparent to you that when you write them down like that, most of them sound a bit random and maybe a bit error-prone and definitely a bit subjective. So to rely on them seems a bit risky. Words in my head, for example outside the circles that we move in, is known as schizophrenia. 
And that feeling that I'm sensing may be God or it may be last night's takeaway. (laughs) And how do I know whether that lovely word or picture in last week's service really was for me and not for one of the other 500 people who were there at the time? What if that line in the song, sing from the east to the west, wasn't God saying that I'd have a worship ministry from Southend to Swansea after all? (laughs) Maybe I was supposed to shout to the north and the south instead. (laughs) And putting out a fleece, that, that sounds very biblical, doesn't it? But was Gideon right to test the Lord in that way? Because it's actually the only time in the Bible when someone did that. So putting out a fleece is no more of a biblical precedent than God speaking through a donkey, as he did with Balaam in Numbers 22. So perhaps it's not the best model for us to follow. Fliss, I'm just popping down the farm to find out what God's saying to the church. And perhaps most important of all, what do we do if we don't feel anything? Then what? Now, people often say that God has a perfect plan for our lives. But what if I miss the target? What if I miss plan A? Do I have to settle for plan B or plan C? Just think of the consequences if I marry the wrong person or move to the wrong town or take the wrong job, if I miss the bullseye of God's will. And this raises a bigger question, of course, as well. What things are in the category of God's will? And what things, if any, aren't? What things does God have a will about? Where does he draw the boundaries? Because the person that I marry and the job that I do and the church that I join, they all seem to be pretty obvious things that God definitely would have a will about. But what about what I have for lunch today? Or whether I wear pink socks? Or whether I choose a Shiraz or a Chardonnay with dinner. Now, most of the time I do wear pink socks, as it happens, and most of the time I do go for the Shiraz. But maybe that's because I like pink socks and Shiraz. So is that my will or his will? Does God have a plan for my life which includes that level of detail? And if not, where does it start and stop? Where can I find a list of which things are in which category? Those he does have a will about and those he doesn't. Now, you may be thinking that I'm being a little bit facetious in some of this. So if you do, please forgive me. I am not uh, belittling how God speaks to us. I'm just trying to illustrate how difficult it is when we try to follow some of these rules that people normally use. So what I'd like to do this morning is to try to give you a very simple framework for understanding the will of God. And to make it easy to remember, we're going to use that image of the target. Only this time, we're going to think of each of the colored rings as different aspects of God's will, which all work together, with each ring telling us something about God's will in a cumulative kind of a way. Starting with the big picture in the outer rings and then ending up with the very heart of God's will in the center. Because I want to suggest to you this morning that a good decision about what God is saying will be in harmony with all of them. So let's start with what the Bible means when it talks about the will of God. 
Because interestingly, we find it talks about it in more than one way. The first way is what we call the sovereign will of God. So that's the outer ring. It's the, the one that frames the rest and holds them all together. And God's sovereign will is what we mean when we say God is in control. He's in control in the sense that nothing can get in his way. He's decided to redeem this world and its outcome is never in doubt. The things about which the prophet spoke and Jesus spoke, they're going to happen at the times that he decides in his master plan. And a key verse for that is Ephesians 1.11. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. And that's what God's sovereignty means. God working out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will according to a plan that he decided in advance. So every enemy that's invaded God's creation will one day finally be defeated and nothing can get in the way. And of course Jesus embodied that sovereign will in his ministry. So when he quoted Isaiah in his very first sermon, Luke 4, this was his mission statement. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He's sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he told us to go and do the same. So when we're doing the stuff, anointed by the Holy Spirit, we already know that we are doing what he told us to do and what he wants us to do. We already know that we're in God's sovereign will. The second way the Bible talks about it is God's moral will. That's the next ring of our target. And that is everything that he's already said about how we should live. So loving one another, serving one another, living faithfully, living sacrificially, giving sacrificially, praying without ceasing, being joined to the church not stealing, not coveting, not gossiping, not being divisive, not committing adultery, and so on. So when we're doing any and all of these things, we also know that we're in God's will. Uh, in the Old Testament, for example, Micah 6.8, he's told you, O man and woman, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And in the New Testament, when Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And of course, Jesus embodied God's moral will too. So copying Jesus and living the way that he did is also already God's will for us. So these are the first two aspects of God's will. And he will never ask anyone to do anything which isn't in line with his sovereign will or anything that isn't in line with his moral will. Equally, we don't need a word from the Lord to do the work of the kingdom, to love people, to serve people, to give generously, sacrificially, and so on. Because we already know all of these things are already in his will for us. So within his sovereign will and within his moral will, there's then the freedom for us to be ourselves. Okay, so far, so good. 
But here's where it gets a little bit tricky. The question is whether there's a third category, whether God has an individual, detailed, personal plan for our life all mapped out in advance within his sovereign will. In other words, a kind of scaled down, personalized version of it. Now, it's relatively easy to think that God has a plan for all the big decisions in my life, such as who I marry, where I live, the church I join, whether I go into full-time Christian work, and so on. But it's a little less clear whether he has a plan for all the little decisions, like the pink socks and the Shiraz or the Chardonnay. But there seems no reason in principle, you would think, why it shouldn't extend down to that level of detail. But if it does, what are the chances realistically of you and me being able to discern it? And if some things aren't in God's plan, then why aren't they? How can I be in the will of God if no will of God exists for them? And none of what we've said so far gives us a way of finding answers to these kinds of questions. But stay with me because we've got three rings to go and hopefully uh, that will give us some help. Now let me just say this as an aside. I am not saying that God isn't interested in the little details of our lives. And I'm not saying that he doesn't guide us in small things. The question is whether being in his will involves a meticulous and detailed plan that God wants me to find and follow all day, every day like some kind of divine sat-nav. Do any of you use sat-nav? Yeah? Well, what I find when I use sat-nav is that it always seems to be rerouting. <laughs> Have you ever experienced that, rerouting, when I miss a turn or take a wrong turn? I wonder if it's a, a bit like that uh, between us and God, whether he finds that with us. But let, let's move on. I want to give a, a sneak preview of both of the next two rings together so that we can talk about how they relate to each other. And those are God's wisdom and God's signposts. In Colossians 1, Paul says, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through what? All the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. So God doesn't just give us revelation of his will through words and pictures. He offers to fill us with knowledge of his will through wisdom as well. And do you see where that comes from? The Holy Spirit. So it's not just words and pictures that are gifts of the Spirit. Wisdom is too. Isn't that interesting? And similarly in the book of James... If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, which is very encouraging, isn't it? Without finding fault, and it will be given to you. So if we were supposed to work only from revelation, then the Bible wouldn't tell us to ask for wisdom. We wouldn't need wisdom, and God wouldn't offer it to us. So wisdom must be important in the mix. I'm reminded of a story of um, someone in a church we were in many years ago who said God had told him to walk down Marlow High Street in just his underpants. Now, Marlow is posh, like St. Albans. So that's not something that people generally do in Marlow. 
Aylesbury, yes. Marlowe, no. <laughs> but if we're relying just on individual personal revelation of the God's told me variety, then why wouldn't God potentially say something as wacky as that? But if we include wisdom in the mix, we might have pause for thought as to whether God really had said it. When there was an issue in the early church in Acts chapter 6 over distribution of food to widows in their equivalent of feed, the decision of the leaders was choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom and we will turn this responsibility over to them. And in Acts 15, when the leaders of the church got together to decide whether Gentile Christians had to keep the law, they made their decision on the basis of what seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Not just what seemed good to the Holy Spirit and me. Now the reason I wanted to talk about wisdom and signposts together is because I think they are two sides of one coin. So we mustn't emphasize one over the other. We mustn't think of one as being more spiritual than the other. They're both just as biblical. The Holy Spirit is the author and inspiration of both, and they work together in our lives. So we must let them do that. We must let them have a conversation with each other, as it were. And remember too that wisdom is not the same thing as common sense. Because what the world commonly thinks of as sensible is often very different from what God thinks of as sensible. Take tithing, for example. God thinks it's a wonderful idea, but the world thinks it's bonkers. But if we want to be in God's will for our finances, it makes all the sense in the world. So that's God's wisdom. Now, signposts is just another word for revelation, and it includes all of those ideas that I mentioned earlier, such as words and pictures and circumstances, a Bible verse, a dream, words in our head, and so on. And sometimes they can be very special and very meaningful. They can often be the icing on the cake of what we feel that God is saying, the final encouragement and confirmation of something. But you know, if we've only got icing, and I've seen this happen, if we've only got icing, God may be saying that we should hold on to that a bit more lightly, at least for the time being. Wisdom, and especially the wisdom of others as well as our own, wisdom may be the cake. And then finally, the bullseye, the heart of God's will. I don't think that the bullseye is a meticulously detailed life plan or even a series of messages from heaven. The bullseye is our relationship with Jesus. And the reason that I've called this intimacy rather than just relationship is because it's a particular kind of relationship that I think is at the heart of knowing and finding his will. And it's all about intimacy. For reasons best known to himself, God has decided to do what he does in this world through us and in partnership with us. Now, I have to say, if I was God, I wouldn't do that. I would cut out the middleman and I'd go direct. Fewer errors, fewer failures, and much less time wasted. But that is not, of course, what he does. 
He works in us and through us by choice. But in terms of the way that he involves us in his plans, he's not a control freak. It's not about messages from heaven. It's about a relationship. So when I say to God, Lord, what do you want me to do? As often as not, I think he says, Steve, I can build my church a thousand ways. What would you like to do? Let's chat about the things that I love and the things I want to see happen. And let's compare that with the things that you have a vision and a passion for. The things that I've already put in your heart. The way that I've made you and I've equipped you and I've gifted you. What part would you like to play in building my kingdom? And let's chat about some of the things I'd love you to be the one to do if you're up for it. So what inspires you? What would you be good at? Let's talk it through together. So it's an intimate conversation with a loving father, not just receiving instructions. So here's a a quick recap. Firstly, the two main ways that the Bible talks about the will of God. His sovereign will is what we mean when we say God's in control. His moral will is everything he's already told us about how to live. So we don't need prophetic words to tell us to do that. As the Nike advert says, just do it. And nothing that we may think God is saying will ever contradict those things. Wisdom is a gift of the Holy Spirit, just like the other gifts. He wants us to have it. He wants to give it to us generously. And he wants us to use it. And the other side of that wisdom coin is revelation or God's signposts. When God gives us particular words and pictures or speaks through circumstances or situations, divine appointments, God coincidences, and so on. And then finally, intimacy with Jesus, which I think sits at the very center, the very heart of discerning his will for us. And to be in God's will is to allow all of these aspects to work together in your life each of them asking us different questions, each of them being ways in which we hear God and we test what we think we're hearing. And I I don't think there's any right order, but we need to let them all contribute and not just rely on or prioritize one. So we're looking for both and, both and, both and. So does that make any sense? So in the last few minutes, let's have a very, very quick look at this question of calling, which is obviously related. And and again, let's start with what the Bible says about it. And what we find in the New Testament is that calling isn't primarily about having a personal role or ministry. Mostly, it talks about the way in which we're all called. So the first aspect is that we're called into a relationship with Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1, God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And in the letter of Jude, he starts by addressing it to those who have been called, which is, of course, everyone that he's writing to. The second aspect is that we're called to live differently. Colossians 1 said, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. In other words, we've moved. 
We don't live in the old place anymore. And the change is all about how we're going to live. Whose domain, whose kingdom, whose jurisdiction we're going to live under. Now, if you're a footballer and you get transferred from one club to another, you're now playing for a different team. So you can't keep on playing for the old team as well. In Ephesians 4, Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling you've received. And that means in our lifestyle, what we do with our money, how we behave at work, how we behave at home, how we spend our time and our sexual ethics. To walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling that we've all received. And then the third aspect is that we're all called to be a servant. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Do you notice, by the way, how we have to do that? Made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. So whatever our ultimate calling may be, to any role or ministry, it always starts with being a servant, and we never stop being a servant. Whatever role or ministry we may take on, we're always called to do it the way a servant would do it. And if we ever stop being a servant, we've stopped walking in a manner that's worthy of the calling we've received. How we think about being a servant nowadays is affected by our knowledge of employment rights. But that's not how it was in New Testament times. If you look up the word servant in the Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary, it says, see slavery. Food for thought. So these are the things that we are all called to be and to do. And you know the context in which God can most easily speak to us about anything else that he has for us is when we're passionately doing these three things. Being intimate with Jesus, being different to the world and being a servant in his kingdom. And if you want to know where to serve, can I suggest following Jesus' example? Because the job of washing people's feet was the one that was given to the lowest household servant in those times. So naturally, that was the one that Jesus chose. So be like Jesus. Find the worst jobs, the least glamorous, the least convenient, the slots on the Sunday rotors that no one else wants to do, because that is our calling. We don't need a word or picture to serve, and especially not to serve in the worst jobs going. So, here's the big question. Does God have a specific calling for every single one of us as well? Now, clearly there are particular callings to particular people in particular times and places. Things that he wants to do and things that he would love certain people to be the ones who do them. And that's very clear, of course, in the Bible, isn't it? Abraham, Moses, Mary, Paul, and others. It's also very clear in people like Martin Luther and John Wesley and William Wilberforce and John Wimber and others too. The question is whether he has something like that for everybody. And this is how I would answer it. I think God wants everyone who wants a calling to have a calling. 
Let me say that again. I think God wants everyone who wants a calling to have a calling. I think there is a me-shaped space and a you-shaped space in his plans. I think there are things that he would really love it for you to be the one who did it for him. And if that's so, then the only question is, do we want it? So where are you at this morning? I wonder what God's saying to you on any of these subjects. We'd love to pray with you about it afterwards if you would like. Maybe I could ask the band to come up. I'm always pleased when I'm in our home church and I see the band actually coming up. Because <laughs> there have been occasions, not very often, there have been occasions, band, where are you? Thank you, guys. Just while they're setting up, I, I think some of us here this morning have perhaps been afraid of God's calling, that it must be something that we won't like, it must be something that we would dread the most or fear the most, so maybe we've backed away from it. But you know, Jesus said that what parent, if their child asks for bread, will give them a stone instead, or if they ask for fish, will give them a snake. Of course, they won't do that. So how much more will your Father in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? So he wants to set us free from that fear this morning. Some of us have been living with the burden that we've missed God's calling, that we had the chance, but we've blown it. We missed the opportunity and it's now passed us by. We're living with the regret and the guilt. But he wants you to know that Romans 8.1 is true. There's no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. So today's your opportunity to be released from the burden, the regret, and the guilt. To have a fresh start and a new sense of calling. Starting now, starting where you're at, with the past behind you. And finally, some of us know that we have a calling. We know that there is stuff that he wants us to do. And maybe this morning has been your roadmap or your satnav for getting there from here. But I think what God is asking of you this morning is to go to a new level of intimacy and a new level of obedience. Because it has to be obedience as well as intimacy. Because intimacy without obedience is just over-familiarity. And I think if that's you, you know that that's what he's asking.